Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3. We're beginning a new chapter here today in our study of the book of Proverbs. And we won't complete the chapter today, most likely. Well, it'll take us a couple weeks uh, to get through the chapter. But we're looking at the promises of wisdom. The promises of wisdom is what I call this lecture. Recall the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs is set as a series of lectures. A father speaking to his son. It's Solomon speaking to Rehoboam, trying to prepare Rehoboam for uh, his life ahead, particularly being the next king, the king of Israel. And we, again, we won't rehearse this every single time, but just remember the context. Uh, Back in chapter 1, we looked at the warning of wisdom. Chapter 2 was the pursuit and profits of wisdom. And now chapter 3, first 12 verses, is what I'm calling the promises of wisdom. The reason I'm calling it that, or this lecture, I'm giving it that title, the promises of wisdom, is because this passage from chapter 3, verses 1 to 12, has this alternating sort of pattern between the the father giving a precept, right, a commandment to follow, and then granting a promise for us to hope in. In other words, uh, if you do this, this is the result, right? Here's the precept, here's the promise, and the promise is, is meant to instill hope within us. And so you'll see this alternating pattern through the text, uh, but it will centralize around one key concept that we'll talk about in just a minute. But this idea of precept promise, precept promise, is a very biblical concept. We see it all over the place. And one of the reasons for that is because God never commands without also providing enablement. In other words, he tells us what to do, but then he gives us the ability to do it. Now, we see that enabling power of God come in a variety of forms, but a promise is in and of itself a form of enablement. And the reason is because a promise produces hope. We can see this pattern several places. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5 is perhaps uh, the most clear. But the idea is that we have this promise set in, in front of us, and that promise set in front of us produces hope within us. And that hope, that idea that of expectation, anticipation that God will come through on his promise, that things will get better, that God is doing a work, that hope is in and of itself a form of enablement. It keeps us going. And so we'll see this pattern throughout the scriptures, but we'll see it clearly in this passage. Now, though there is this alternating pattern between precept and promise, there is also a, a central idea that the passage seems to be building around. In fact, the key verse of this passage is probably verse 6. It's really the key promise. There's more than one promise in the text, but this seems to be really the key one that has become rather famous. Right? It's God's promise for guidance for his people. Right? Many people have, have memorized and often quote Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. That idea that God will direct your paths in verse 6 is really the key uh, central promise, so it seems, of this text. And you can really build a bit of an outline around this idea. And, and, I, and I think this is helpful. And I get this outline primarily from Warren Wearsby. And uh, he's a genius for outlining. I've mentioned that before. But he points out that if that is our central idea of the passage, then you really have four primary conditions that the passage gives us in verses 1 to 12 in order to receive that promise in verse 6. And these are the four conditions that we must meet, if you will, in order to receive God's guidance. Verses 1 to 4 tells us, teaches us, that we need to learn God's truth. 
We need to learn God's truth. That's verses 1 through 4. Secondly, we need to obey God's will. Verses 5 through 8. Learn God's truth. And secondly, obey God's will. Third, share God's blessings. We'll see the concept of graciousness, the concept of tithing, the concept of giving back to God that which is due him, verses 9 and 10. But then lastly, we are to submit to God's chastening. That's verses 11 and 12. In other words, to receive God's guidance, we must first learn his truth, second, obey his will, third, share his blessings, and fourth, submit to his chastening hand. When we do that, when we live life with these attitudes and actions in mind, then we are promised to receive God's guidance. Now, this concept, before we jump into these four conditions that the text gives us, let's look quickly uh, at that central promise in verse 6. The central promise of the text is, as Charles Bridges calls it, the pole star for the child of God. This idea that we ought to have faith in our our Father's providence, His promises, and His grace. This, This guiding light that God promises to, as the text says, make your paths straight. To make your paths straight. Now, fundamentally, this promise is all about God pointing out one's path in life. The idea that He would remove obstacles, tell us where to go to lead us in a safe and profitable way. This idea is illustrated many times throughout Israeli history, particularly in our study of the book of Exodus. We're going to get to this. We're we're close to it, in fact. We're studying Exodus 12 uh, at this point on on our Wednesday nights. But in Exodus 13, verses 17 to 22, we'll notice that the pillar of cloudy fire, right? That fire and cloud pillar that represents the presence of God. It's the manifestation of God's presence with his people is going to lead his children out of Egypt in the Exodus. And yet it's profound as he leads his people through the wilderness that even the very beginning, and we'll talk about it more when we get there, but there's a fork in the road, if you will. In fact, there's three primary routes that would take Israel from Egypt to Canaan. And God does, he purposefully does not choose the quickest and easiest route, which is the way of the Philistines. It's the way that actually follows the coastal plain. Uh, It's closest to the Mediterranean Sea. It would have the most amount of water, the smoothest travel, uh, you know, easiest walk, you know, as far as, you know, because of its level uh, plain. But God doesn't go that way because there's Philistines there and the children of Israel are not ready to face the Philistines in a military conflict. So God, foreseeing the faltering faith of Israel, says, I'm not going to take them that way. I'm rather going to take them the way of the wilderness. And we'll talk about that more when we get there. But the point is, it, it, it evidences, it illustrates God's foresight, God's shepherding care as he guides his people. Not only in the wilderness time period do we see this, but this metaphor would be particularly uh, impactful for Israelis, not only ancient, but also modern, uh, more so for the ancients, perhaps. But if you know much about the Israelite geography, that is, in the land of Israel, the actual geography of the land, Really, the, the, the most densely populated areas that Israel controlled through her history is the mountainous region. It's called the hill country. And it's this spine that goes north and south all the way through the country. And it's very rocky, very hilly, steep hills, uh, very you know, small valleys. And this idea is, of course, interesting because when you, when you travel in ancient Israel, there are paths to follow. 
In other words, you can, if you want, just cut across country, but you're going to be going up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down a lot, right? From ridge to valley, ridge to valley, you're going to exhaust yourself. But there is a path. In fact, uh, it, it's, there's a very well-worn series of paths that to this day still make up the main highways of modern Israel. And these paths are the connecting ridges, that there's, there's ridges that if you can stay atop the ridge line, in fact, it's called the ridge route in antiquity, but if you stay atop the ridge route, then you avoid all this up and down valleys and because you're just walking from connecting ridge to connecting ridge. But it's a very specific route. Jerusalem sits just off the ridge route. Many of the key cities up and down the hill country are located on that main thoroughfare, right? The, the ridge route. And so that may well be a metaphor that Solomon is, is alluding to because it was well known in this time place, this region, this culture, the idea being that there is a specific way in which we ought walk in order to avoid the obstacles, avoid the dangers, to walk in a smooth and level way the best you can, particularly in the hill country. And so that idea is what Solomon seems to be harnessing. The concept being that God promises this guidance and direction in our lives, again, if we submit to the four conditions that are contained in this passage. The four conditions are, again, first, to learn God's truth. So if you've got your Bible, let's go back and look at verses 1 through 4. First condition, if we are to receive God's guidance, is to, number one, learn God's truth. He says this, My son, forget not my law. But let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and long life and peace shall they add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them about your neck. Write them upon the table of your heart. So shall you find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Again, as Charles Bridges points out, this begins with, uh, again, not, not the, the concept of a stern command, but rather the enduring persuasiveness of a promise, as he puts it. That God is saying... Forget not my law. Let your heart keep my commandments. Why? Because the length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. In other words, again, that, that promise of what happens if we are obedient to God is in and of itself a means of enablement. It's a promise that produces hope within us, anticipation of uh, the benefit and the blessing that we receive if we follow God. But he makes it clear that this reward of obeying God from, must be first from the heart, right? That we are to not forget God's law. We must let our heart keep his commandments. He'll say in just a moment, and we'll, we'll talk about it, but we're to write it upon the tablet or table of our heart. And yet if we do this, this is one of the most frequent promises that we see through the books of uh, Psalms and Proverbs, and we'll see it many times in our study of the book here of Proverbs. But verse 2 says, Length of days and long life and peace they shall add to you. Length of days and long life and peace shall, they shall ha add to you. Now, while this is absolutely true in a general sense, even to the modern day, as we talk about, and we will many more times, we talked about a while back in chapter one, right? The idea is the father speaking to his son, warning him about the company he keeps, right? He says, don't go join a gang because it will lead to a violent death, a short life. And the idea is, is obvious, right? We see the implications of that to this day, that if we go on, in wickedness and in, in, uh, disobedience to God. We indulge in uh, whether it is illicit sex or alcohol or drug abuse or violence. It leads to a shorter life. We will not live a long, happy, peaceful life. 
because we are placing ourselves in sin and danger. But this is all the more true in ancient Israel underneath the theocracy, that God says that if you keep my ways, remember we talked about this from before, we'll see it many more times, but read, for instance, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 32, the places where God lists the blessings and curses of the covenant. And the point is, if ancient Israel, and again, this is Solomon, the king, speaking to his son Rehoboam, he's going to be the next king. And the idea is, son, if you will walk in the ways of wisdom and you follow God's path, then it will bring a long, peaceful, happy life, not just for the king, but for the nation. The nation will prosper. Their enemies will be subdued. They will have no major military uh, you know, setbacks or conflicts. They will not have drought. They will not have severe weather patterns. They will have blessing. They will have crops. They will have food. They will have joy. He says, if you but follow God. And this promise, though it is true in a general sense for us today, was all the more specifically uh, true in the theocracy of Israel because the covenant that God made with Israel. And, and David will also draw attention to this in Psalm 34, for instance. We don't need to go there for a second time, but it's the same basic concept. And so we see this will be rehearsed many times throughout the book of Proverbs. But in order to receive that blessing, again, we must, again, as he says in verse 1, forget not the law of God or to let our heart keep God's commandments. Or as he rephrases it in verse 3, he says, let not mercy and truth forsake you, bind them about your neck and write them upon the table or tablet of your heart. Again, this demand that we see here in verse three to bind something on one's neck is not found outside of Proverbs. We will see it again in chapter six and chapter seven, which is similar. Chapter seven uses uh, bind it around your finger. But this idea of binding around the neck is believed to simply be another way of saying the same thing that Moses said back in Deuteronomy chapter 6. The language reminds us of that passage, the Shema, as it's called, one of the most famous passages, if not the most famous passage in all of Judaism, is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9, and it includes a command to the people to tie the law on their hands, to bind it on their foreheads. The idea is suggested here that the, the, to bind it around the neck is simply another way of saying that, but perhaps this is intentional because the idea of the neck is also mentioned many times throughout the poetic and particularly the prophetic books for the stubbornness of Israel. Because of disobedience, they are described as having a stiff neck, right? And this is an, it's largely an agricultural idiom. It's the idea of trying to put a harness, right? On a donkey or your, yeah, you know, because the horses, right, I'm sure. Uh, an oxen, whatever, you're trying to, you're trying to get it to go a certain way. You're trying to control that large beast. And the idea of a stiff neck is they're going to resist, right? They're stiffening the neck. They're not going to follow when you're saying, go this way, go that way, go forward, stop, right? They're going to, they're just not going to listen. They're going to stiffen their neck and do their own thing. So that becomes a very common idiom for the rebellious, disobedient sort of posture that Israel has before God. And so this is possible that that's why he's saying, tied about your neck. In other words, uh, stop being stiff-necked, but submit to the yoke of what God is, is telling you to do. Another idiom that means the same thing is he says, write it upon the table, the tablet of your heart. Now, again, you're perhaps already familiar with this, but in the ancient world, writing was often done on tablets. In fact, to this day, we have uh, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of clay tablets that have been discovered from ancient Mesopotamia. 
and they're made out of clay. And typically, at least in Mesopotamia, what they would typically do is they would have wet clay or clay that's in the process of drying, but it's not all the way dry yet. You can press it with a stylus. You can press into that clay, and it leaves an impression on the clay. And it's called uh, most of what we found from Mesopotamia is in cuneiform, and it's all these little you know angles. They take a stylus and you and you and, and it's writing. It's letters. It's you know it's it's their language written down, but it's pressed into the clay, and then they would let that clay dry. Or, in some cases, they would bake it. Or, because cities were attacked and burned down, sometimes the, the clay was fired because the city was being destroyed and it was being burned down. And so that clay actually hardened in the fire to where it, it's, it's remarkably preserved. We can go back thousands of years later and we can dig these clay you know, pieces out of the earth. And the writing is still intact. We can still read everything that they wrote down things that are, you know, the high and lofty decrees of the king. But we've also found menial business receipts, like, you know, in the cuneiform tablet, they're like, mark it in there. You bought X amount of wheat for me and you paid this many, you know, pieces of silver. And, you know, it's, it's a bill of sale. It's, I mean, we found all sorts of these. In ancient Israel, we see it primarily in the Old Testament because clay was less available. It was much more available in Mesopotamia. So they used clay. Um, and it, but in Israel, what they often did is they, there were wooden boards or pieces of stone even that they would cover with wax and they would use it the same way, right? They would make an impression in the wax and that's how they write. Uh, then down in, not to get lost in this because it's, you know, you're welcome. It's a freebie. But, but then down in Egypt, they invented a very profound way of writing, right? Because they had a certain type of weed <laughs> that grows along the banks of the Nile. It's called papyri. And they take that and they would cut it in half. They would cut strips. Then they would weave that together, press it flat, and they would come up with papyrus. Guess where what that turns into is modern word. We actually get the modern word paper from the word papyrus. All right. So they were the, the Egyptians were the first to actually figure out papyrus. And But the point is, when Moses, or, uh, well, here is Solomon, Solomon, excuse me. When Solomon is speaking to his son, Rehoboam, the most common form of writing at that time was on the tablets. And so what he's doing here is he's, of course, using that as a metaphor for the heart, that you have a heart, a mind that is like a tablet. And the idea is you must write it upon your heart, memorize this, know it, internalize this, learn to love God's commands. And this is the concept that we see throughout the scripture. That's really what Deuteronomy 6 is getting at. It's what Proverbs 3, Proverbs 7, we'll see at many other places throughout the scripture. But the idea is that we're internalizing God's commands so that it's not merely something memorized, but it's something that we love. Our affections are drawn to it and it shapes our actions by shaping our motives and our desires. But again, I think it's uh, just one more thought on this and then we'll get off it. But the only other place where writing on the heart is specifically mentioned, the idea of writing on the heart, is Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 1, where it's actually describing Judah's sin that has been inscribed, it says, with a diamond pen, a diamond point. In other words, he's talking about their very nature, right? That it's so deeply ingrained uh, on their hearts. Their sin is deeply ingrained upon their hearts. And the idea is that that's our human nature is to have sinful, wicked hearts. And we need 
to pursue wisdom and rewrite our hearts, putting God's commands on it. Paul will put it another way in the New Testament saying we need to renew our minds. Yes, you got a thought? Exactly. That's exactly right. So did you all catch that? It's just another form of this same metaphor is the idea is not only stiff-necked, but elsewhere we often see the idea of a hard heart. And a hard heart can't be written on, right? The idea is you're not changing that heart. It's hardened and you're, it, it's, it's uh, resistant. It's, this, it's just another way of saying stiff-necked. That's exactly right. And there's all sorts of these metaphors, which is why one of the reasons, I, I mean, I love reading the Bible. I love uh, the poetic sections. Man, they are just rich with metaphor. And you just got to understand, most of these are, you know, coming from an ancient uh, agrarian, agricultural sort of context. But man, are they profound when you start thinking through the word pictures. So what happens next? Well, again, well, verse four, well, let's finish this condition. He says, if this happens, he says, so you will find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. In other words, if we take God's commandments, write them upon the table of our heart, we will find favor and good understanding in the sight of God. And man, again, I love how Charles Bridges puts this. He says, God is not in your debt. I love that. God is not in your debt. But on the other hand, nobody serves God to no avail. We see the truth of this verse in examples such as Joseph in Egypt, David and the family of Saul, or the early Christians with the people around them. In other words, and we, we don't have the time to go there, but Genesis 39 is uh, Joseph working before Potiphar, right, Potiphar? And he's working and he's, he's being productive so much so that he is given favor. People look at him and they're like, man, this guy knows his business. Like this guy is really good at what he does. David, same thing. Bible says that he is walking wisely and God is with him in all that he did. First Samuel chapter 18, so much so that he, he rises the ranks very quickly in Saul's court. So much so that the whole nation of Israel is singing the praises of David, this young man who is in the court of Saul. Same thing, early Christians, uh, Acts chapter 2 records the same sort of response, that they were so full of love for one another and unity and uh, joy that it says that they had good reputation with everybody in Jerusalem. They said, oh, you're a Christian? And Christian meant something. It was something that it was, it brought with it that idea of favor where people say, oh man, that means you're a person of integrity. I can trust you. And that's the idea. So again, verse four is pointing that out, that if we follow God in this way, if we learn God's truth, we internalize God's commandments, this does result in favor and good understanding in both the sight of God and man. But let's look at the second condition. Verses five through eight tells us, that not only are we to, first, in order to receive God's guidance, first condition, learn God's truth. That's verses 1 to 4. Now, we secondly need to obey God's will, verses 5 through 8. Now again, let's read it. He says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. So shall, uh, it shall, rather, be health to your navel and morrow to your bones. Pause there. Now, Again, you're familiar with this text, perhaps. It's a very rich, well-known text in, in Christian circles. But to trust the Lord, as, as uh, we're implored to in verse 5, means to rely upon him, to depend upon him, to have confidence in him. Trusting God means to regard him as the source of wisdom and power in all things and therefore worthy of our entire confidence. We can trust 
upon him. The inverse of that is in the second part of the verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. But then he says, lean not in your own understanding. The idea of lean is the word rely. It renders a word that it means to lean or to support oneself. We see it in a number of historic contexts, which I always enjoy doing. I encourage you to do if you're doing a word study, particularly in, in the Proverbs, the Psalms, or the Prophets, then when you're looking at that word, see how it's used in a narrative context because it gives so much insight into what that word is, is getting at. But here, for instance, the word trust or lean or rely has the idea of, of leaning on something for support. Saul, for instance, in 2 Samuel 1 and verse 6 is described as leaning upon his spear. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 18 describes the king of Syria leaning on Naaman's arm. Naaman, remember, was his, his, uh, his right hand, if you will. He was, he was the head of the Syrian military. And so he, the king leaned on him. He relied upon him. He trusted in him. He confided in him. He needed him in order to carry out his plans and purposes. Well, Solomon is saying that's how we need to posture ourselves before God. Because this idea of leaning physically, you know, entrusting your weight to, uh, to, to another or to a staff or something like that, to lean upon it. This, of course, is extended to describe how we are to trust, lean upon the Lord. Isaiah 10 in particular, in verse 20, is in a rather potent passage where this occurs. And the idea is he says, don't lean, because he's actually talking about, oh boy, I'm trying to decide how long to go into this rabbit trail. But we were just there not long ago. Well, it was like a year ago <laughs> when we were in Isaiah 10. But remember our Isaiah class? Isaiah 10 is describing how Ahaz, king of Israel, decided to trust in Assyria rather than trust in Yahweh. Remember, there was a military threat coming against Jerusalem. And he says, well, I can trust in my God or I can make an alliance with a big foreign nation and trust in them. And of course, he chooses to trust in the nation, not in God. So he makes a deal with Assyria, which then God turns around through Isaiah and he says, oh, you made the wrong choice because guess what Assyria is going to do? They're actually going to come in and they're going to uh, spoil your land. They're going to conquer you militarily. You just invited you know, the fox into the hen house, if you will. Right? That's the idea. And so, but then he turns around in that sermon in Isaiah 10 and he says, but there's coming a day where the remnant will no longer lean upon a foreign nation, but the remnant will lean upon Yahweh. And he uses a word play there, a really potent passage to describe this concept. Again, but he says, trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding, or the word is insight. The idea is it translates the same word that we've already seen back in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Proverbs and it refers to the ability to comprehend something, right? To, to see it, to understand it. Uh, it's referring to our intelligence, our ability to grasp certain ideas. So he says, do not lean upon your own ability to grasp things. Don't look to your own intellect to save you. Rather, he says, our trust should be total and constant in the Lord. That He says, in all your ways acknowledge him. In other words, this is, is often, pause, you know, preachers will pause right here and they'll start listing off the ways that you may trust in him, but the ways that you don't, right? Because often for us as believers, we look to God to secure our eternal salvation, but then again, we won't trust him with our health, our finances, our relationships. But he's saying here that in all of our ways, all of the walks of life, every decision that we make, we are to follow 
the Lord. Trust in him. Lean upon him rather than our own understanding. Because our own understanding is foolish. In fact, elsewhere in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 28 verse 26 is going to point out that self-dependence, leaning on our own insight, is labeled as foolishness. Because we're not going to be able to see all things, to out you know, maneuver every possible obstacle because we're not omniscient. But guess who is omniscient? <laughs> it's God. So that's the whole idea. Self-dependence or leaning on our own insight is foolishness. But it's also described as rebellion in the book of Jeremiah. And it leads to ruin, according to Genesis 3 and Isaiah 47. The idea is that it's self-destructive to lean on our understanding and to refuse to listen to God. But the reason that we lean on our own understanding is because, well, first, pride and arrogance, that we actually think we can figure it out. But often the other side you know, of that coin, the flip side of that coin, is we do not trust in God, that we don't actually think God, and again, for most believers that I talk to, they believe in God's power. Oh, God can do it, sure. God can do whatever he wants. But they doubt God's love, that God would do what's best for you. So many people doubt that. And so they don't trust that God will actually give them what they want. And so they're going to take you know, their life into their own hands, and they're going to ignore God. So what's profound, and this is... Uh, helpful for me is that the scriptures teaches us three essential truths about God that we must believe if we're going to trust him. He is trustworthy, but we're never going to trust him unless we see him as trustworthy. And so there are three essential truths about God that we must understand if we are to trust him. And that is simply this. First, God is completely sovereign. That's his power, that God can control all things. Number two, God is infinite in wisdom, that he is so wise and he is so smart, he cannot make a miscalculation. He cannot make a mistake. And then number three, God is perfect in love. He's perfect in love. So he actually has my best interests at heart. Now, this is the different Bridges. I've been quoting Charles Bridges quite a bit, but this is Jerry Bridges, right? He puts it this way. Someone has expressed these three truths as they relate to us in this way. Quote, God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. End quote, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, Jerry. That's from, I think it's from, that's the book, Trusting God, right? You guys just finished that a while back. And that's, I mean, it's, it's such a profound way to simply, you know, in one sentence or two, I guess two sentences, two sentences, to kind of weave those three ideas together. That God in his love always wills what's best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what's best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. So that's why we are to trust God, because he is trustworthy. He is completely so sovereign, infinitely wise, and perfect in his love. So he will not lead us astray. Verse 7 and 8 of the same text is simply reiterating some of these ideas. He says in verse 7, Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Again, we've talked about that uh, before. In fact, we gave a whole session of this idea of the fear of the Lord back in chapter 1. But the fear of the Lord rejects personal autonomy. Don't deceive yourself by thinking you know better than God. Rather, fear Him, trust Him, and obey Him. That's the idea. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't think that you can outsmart God. That's the height of foolishness. Right? And we all despise that in the know-it-all high school kid. You know what I'm saying? That can't be taught because they think they got everything figured out. 
My dad might just drive you nuts. I was one of those kids once. You know what I'm saying? And so were you. But looking back, then you have kids and then you're raising kids and you're just like, wow. I mean, they're, they're 13. They know nothing. And yet they think that they got it all figured out, right? And it's like, but that's the way, I mean, think about that in times of infinity when we ignore God, right? I mean, God is infinitely wise. He can't make a miscalculation or mistake and yet we defy him and we think we can outsmart him. And man, that's uh, the Greek word is idiotes, I think, right there. Yeah. So even, this is so obvious, in fact, that even a non-Christian, a non-believer, a pagan, he's a Roman philosopher. You ever heard of Seneca? He made the same observation. He says this, I suppose that many might have attained to wisdom had they not thought that they already attained it. Right? In other words, <laughs> this guy's not even a believer, but I'm sure he had a high school kid. So, I mean, you know, he, he saw this. And so it's, it's the reality that so many times we say, but not all high school kids are that way, right? Back there. Yeah, you guys got this, right? You listen to your parents. Amen. That's great. Okay, moving on. Verse 8. But he says this, this and again, this, it's simply repeating what we already saw back up in verse uh, 2. It's kind of rephrasing it. Right, But the idea is length of days and long life and peace they'll add to you. That's verse 2. Verse 8 is simply saying the same thing a different way when he says, it shall be health to your navel and marrow to your bones. It reiterates the promise of blessing from God if we submit to his will for our lives, that it will actually lead to a longer, healthier life if we submit to God's ways and follow God's paths rather than resist it. But I'm running out of time. So let's look at the third condition here. Let's look at number 3 and 4 as fast as I can. Uh, verse 9 and 10 is our third condition. How do we receive God's guidance? Number one, learn his truth. Number two, obey his will. Number three, share God's blessings. Look at verse 9 and 10. He says, Honor the Lord with your substance and with the first fruits of all your increase. So shall your barns be filled with plenty and your presses shall burst out or burst forth with new wine. Again, a worldly person finds this very difficult, hard precept. But for God's servant, it's a privilege to put, one's, to put aside part of one's wealth and label it as this is for God. In other words, it's a joy to give back to God, as he says here, the first fruits of all of your crops or your increase. This idea of first fruits, we're going to discuss it more in our study of the book of Exodus. Exodus 13 is going to talk about this. Deuteronomy 26 has long fascinated me. I enjoy that passage where it's giving the ancient Israelite the actual words he is to say when he comes before God with his first fruits. And the idea is the first fruits is that uh, first portion, best of your crops. You were to take that and go dedicate it to God at the temple. And when you did that, there was actually a specific, uh, I don't want to use the word, I about said the word mantra, that comes with pagan connotations. So I don't like that word. But the idea is there was, there was actually a creed, it's probably a better word, that you were to say before the Lord, according to Deuteronomy 26. And it was actually a rehearsal of God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. It was a rehearsal of the Exodus story. And then you say, because God brought us out of Egypt, brought us into this good land, and I have all these blessings from God, all of these crops that are growing because of God's good hand, then I'm giving a portion back and saying, thank you, God. You are the one who owns all things. I'm simply acknowledging that you are in control. And this idea, that's the whole point of the idea of giving, dedicating first fruits or tithing is, is, we get that word from the Greek, but it literally means a tenth because that was what the first fruits, right, and, and the, uh, of Israel, that's what they were to dedicate. It was 10% of it. 
And the idea is that we're to do this with, without having doubt that the Lord will indeed add his seal of approval to this. As Samuel puts it in 1 Samuel chapter 2, those who honor me, I will honor. That's what God says. Those who honor me, I will honor. We don't have the time to go there, but Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 to 12, God is saying the same thing through the prophet Malachi in his generation, that people were so stingy that they did not want to give God any portion of their wealth. And so they said, well, we're just going to keep all of it. And God says, why don't you just test me? I promised you that if you give a portion back, he says that I will give you blessings overflowing. And that's what the proverb is telling you. Honor the Lord with your substance, with the first fruits of all your increase, and what's, good, what's God going to do? Your barns will be filled with plenty, and your presses will burst forth with new wine. Does God have the ability to outgive you? Yeah. My dad says this all the time. He said it for years and years growing up. He says, You can't outgive God. It's impossible. You can't outgive Him. The more gracious you are to others, the more grace God gives you. The book of Proverbs says this over and over again, various different ways. But so many people, right, because we're stingy or we don't trust God, then we, we hold back all of our wealth. And what happens is we actually have less wealth because God holds back his blessing. So he says, just, and this is, again, just another way of evidencing our trust in God. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, including your finances, right? In all your ways, acknowledge him, including your finances, and God will bless in return. But the fourth and final condition is found in verses 11 and 12, all right? Let's camp on this idea. I got four minutes, and then we're wrapping it up for today. Notice verse 11 and 12. He says, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. Why? For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, this is a very familiar concept to many of you, perhaps, because it's a very biblical concept, shows up many places. We camped on it a lot on our uh, Wednesday nights a while back in Hebrews 12, the idea of God's chastening. But the Greek word for chastening, and that's uh, used in the Septuagint translation of this text, and of course it appears in Hebrews chapter 12, the Greek root for chastening literally means to hit. And it shares the root with the Greek word for child, right? You've got to love the way the Greeks just said it, right? It means to hit your child. <laughs> but the idea is we see that used that way in Luke chapter 23, for instance, where they're actually beating the root word to beat uh, Christ, actually, in, his, in the punishment. But to chastise is, is normally translated because the idea is not just a vindictive unleashing of anger. Rather, the word chastise is typically translated to train or tutor or instruct or even in the sense of a coach. Because remember, Hebrews 12 uses that same word to describe not merely a father, but a coach who puts his trainee through physical rigor. He pushes him in order to make him better. The idea is, of course, that God's chastening hand, his discipline, is never a vindictive affliction of pain, but always a measured affliction for correction. We don't have time to go there, but jot those references down. Jeremiah 23, verse 20, Jeremiah 30 verse 24, where it describes how God's correction is measured, that it has a purpose behind it, that God is not flying off the handle and just, you know, beating his children. Rather, he's instructing his children by using difficulty. In fact, uh, let me just skip to an illustration here, and then we'll wrap it up. Again, I think yeah, I get this from Jerry Bridges, probably the same book. I love this illustration, and with this, we'll, we'll close. But Jerry Bridges points this out. He says, one of the many fascinating events in nature is the emergence of, and I think it's uh, 
it's supposed to be the S, Cecropia is how you pronounce that, Cecropia moth from its cocoon, an event that occurs only with much struggle on the part of the moth to free itself. The story is frequently told of someone who watched a moth go through this struggle in an effort to help and not realizing the necessity of the struggle, the viewer snipped the shell of the cocoon. Soon, the moth came out with its wings all crimpled and shriveled. But as the person watched, the wings remained weak. The moth, which in a few moments would have stretched those wings to fly, was now doomed to crawling out its brief life in frustration of ever being the beautiful creature God created it to be. What the person in the story did not realize was that the struggle to emerge from the cocoon was an essential part of the developing the muscle system of the moth's body and pushing the body fluids into the wings in order to expand them. By unwisely seeking to cut short the moth's struggle, the watcher had actually crippled the moth and doomed its existence. That is such a profound story. And it simply illustrates this basic idea that God is working sovereignly in my life. He is working in my creation, my affliction, and nothing is accidental. That God is working to draw me to himself. And what's important is when I trust myself to the sovereignty of God, that even when hard times, right, when we're going through, uh, I gotta go back to another quote, but Charles Bridges points out how this is the opposite of the previous text, that whether it's prosperity or adversity, right, whether it's prosperity, that our, our barns are filled with plenty, right, and our presses are bursting forth with new wine, whether we're enjoying plenty, prosperity, or adversity. Maybe we're going to go through a hard time. Maybe it's going to be a lean year. He says, all of this, we are to trust the Lord and honor him in the midst of all situations. Why? Because we have to trust that God is doing what God does best. He is raising his children. He's teaching us to struggle. We'll talk about it more when we get to parenting in the book of Proverbs, but this is one of the key things. And I remember many examples from my childhood where I wanted to quit, and my dad said, nope, you're not quitting. And he, he let me, he made me struggle. He let life be a little bit hard. Why? Because I was strengthening my wings. One day I was going to spread my wings and fly. But I can't do that unless I went through the process of struggle. And if you make life too easy for your kids, they will never fly. You know what I'm saying? They will be weak. They will be incapable of dealing with any sort of hardship. God knows that. So God is doing that in our life. As he's saying, just trust me. Through good times and bad, God is working sovereignly for our good. If we trust that, if we submit to God's affliction, result, right? He makes smooth our path. He guides us. He leads us through life. Yeah, you got a comment? That's exactly right. You have to have something to struggle against. Otherwise, right, that's the whole concept of weightlifting. Make it hard. Why? Because now you're going to become stronger. If all you do is coast, you'll never grow stronger. That's absolutely true. And God knows that, right? He's the master craftsman. So we trust him and he leads our paths. All right, I'm out of time. That's good stuff. Well, let's close in prayer and we'll dismiss. Father, thank you, Lord, for Proverbs chapter 3, the promises 
of wisdom. We ask that you would teach us, Lord, these promises. Teach us to trust you, to lean upon you, to not look to our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you and you will direct our paths. You will make our paths straight and smooth. You will help us avoid the obstacles of life that are uh, the pitfalls of sin. But you don't make us avoid struggle. Rather, you put us through struggle so that we can grow strong in our faith and our reliance upon you. Lord, teach us these things so that we might be wise men and women that follow you and live for your glory. So we commit ourselves to you afresh in Christ's name. Amen.